Last time we spoke about the daring attack on Milne Bay. The Japanese attempted an amphibious pincer attack upon Milne Bay to seize its crucial airfield, but it ended up becoming a complete catastrophe. Some foolish Japanese forces decided to have a picnic on Good Enough Island, and they were left stranded there when the Allies bombed their barges. For the unlucky souls who snuck into Milne Bay, they faced days of hard-fought battles, only to reach one of the incomplete airfields at Gili Gili, and get absolutely smashed by the defenders. In the end, it was a scramble to flee for their lives, and the entire ordeal led the IGN to never attempt an amphibious assault upon the bay again. The Allied victory was a huge morale booster for the Australians. However, the overland war for Port Moresby was still raging, and General Hori was nowhere near done. But today we are venturing back to Guadalcanal, where one of the bloodiest battles is about to occur. This episode is the Battle of Bloody Ridge. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. It's been 10 months since the start of the Pacific War, and we are now reaching one of the high points of the conflict. Along the Kokoda Track, General Hori and his South Seas Detachment are relentlessly advancing towards Port Moresby, despite having orders to halt. It will prove to be a fatal mistake made by the very ambitious General Hori, one that would lead him and his men to doom. Meanwhile, over in Guadalcanal, General Kawaguchi had arrived and began preparations for a second shot at taking Henderson Field, the ultimate prize in the Solomons by this point. The result will be a bloodier battle than the catastrophe at Alligator Creek. Both the forces on New Guinea and Guadalcanal are posed to claim the primary objectives. Now, when Kawaguchi got onto the Tokyo Express with 6,200 of his men, the intelligence given to him by his superiors was that he could expect around 2,000 U.S. Marines and 15 aircraft around Henderson Field. Kawaguchi had the benefit of being able to choose the time and place of attack, and the jungle offered him the additional advantage of concealing his movements to achieve complete surprise. On September the 7th, Kawaguchi issued his plan for the attack, it was impractical to rendezvous with Oka's men, who were stranded to the west of the American perimeter, so he opted to designate Oka's force as the left wing, slated to attack the southwest quarter of the American perimeter. Kawaguchi then split his forces into four battalions, each 650 men strong. 
When he reached Tevu, the Japanese would have five battalions, who could move along three different avenues of advance. The main body under Kawaguchi's direct command were the 124th Infantry of the 1st Battalion, led by Major Yukichi Kokusho, the 124th of the 3rd Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Kuzukichi Watanabe, and the 4th Infantry of the 2nd Battalion, led by Major Masio Tamura. His engineer and other supporting units would loop down into the jungle from Tater and hit the Marines' position from the south to grab the airfield. Kawaguchi also had a right-wing unit made up of Ichiki's second echelon, now designated the Kuma, or Bear, Battalion, led by Major Isi Mizuno. The Bears would puncture the American line along Alligator Creek to, quote, thus giving repose to the departed souls of the Ichiki detachment commander and men. One artillery unit would position itself due east of the marine lines to support the assault. Kawaguchi also called upon the IGN to perform a bombardment campaign on September the 9th and 10th. The IGN would also prevent the enemy from escaping. The 8th Fleet was tasked with contributing cruisers and destroyers for this, which would depart from truck on September the 9th and 10th, to be in position to deal with any American naval interference. It was not Kawaguchi's fault, but... Miscommunication led the Navy to believe the set date was September the 11th for the mission. On the evening of September the 7th, the IGN relayed new intelligence to Kawaguchi, indicating the arrival of major American reinforcements at Fiji. It would take them around a week or so to reach Guadalcanal. Thus, the idea was to speed everything up before the reinforcements could get there. The IGN told Kawaguchi, they would attack on the 11th, prompting him to rearrange his timetables so his men would be on the march by September the 9th. Vandegrift got word of the presence of Japanese east of the perimeter via coast watchers and his native allies. They told them around 200 to 300 of the enemy were at a village called Tasimboko, erecting a defensive position oriented west along the beach. Merritt Edson, and Gerald Thomas recommended landing Edson's battalion 3,000 yards beyond the Japanese concentration to try and hit their rear. The plan was similar to the former Kokumbona disaster. With the 1st Parachute Battalion added to the 1st Raider Battalion, Edson now had around 849 officers and men, after losing many to Talagi. Two destroyers, the Manly and the McKean, stood by to take the battalion on its mission alongside two YPs which the Marines often referred to as tuna boats. The four vessels were unable to carry all of Edson's men at once, thus they would have to come back in waves. The American intelligence, like the Japanese, had miscalculated the enemy numbers. The natives were telling them the Japanese were at least two to 3,000 strong, but the Marine commanders doubted their mathematical abilities and predicted the Japanese were probably less than those numbers, with two out of ten men actually armed probably most of them starving to death. At 5.30 a.m. on September the 8th, the first wave of raiders made it to Tavu Point, where they found signs of recent landings. Edson ordered his men to hit the west, sending two companies along the coast, with a third curving inland to hit the Japanese flank on its south. At around 8 a.m., the marines ran into 300 Japanese around Tazimboko. Luckily for Edson's men, a small convoy of transports, the Fuller, Bellatrix, and their escorts were steaming towards Lunga Point at this time, 
and the Japanese saw them in the distance, and this spooked them into believing a major landing force was present. When Edson's men attacked, a large number of the Japanese fled. However, not all did, and those who stood their ground erected machine guns quite quickly. The Marines were met with the shells of field guns and machine gun fire at point-blank range. Kawaguchi ordered the artillery battery commander to hit the Marine invaders with the aid of half a company of infantry and a platoon of engineers. Kawaguchi kept the rest of his men on task heading for the airfield. Edson quickly called in for air support, and some P-40s and SBDs were tossed into action. Edson also requested an additional battalion, which was refused by Vandegrift, who added perhaps he should just withdraw. But Edson was no one for half-assed jobs. The second wave was to include the parachutists at around 11.30, but Edson's first wave would prove sufficient to the task already. Edson's Company A had gone through a marsh, taking some time and suddenly burst upon the Japanese rear, forcing tons of the defenders to leap from their field pieces and machine gun nests scattering for their lives. By 12.30, the opposition ceased, and an hour later, Tasimboko was Edson's. Edson ordered the men to grab anything of value, including some documents. He then ordered some of his men to bayonet thousands of tins of beer and crab meat. The rest of the supplies were to be destroyed. Satisfied with the job, Edson got the boys home. The entire ordeal cost two marines killed and six wounded, while they took out around 27 Japanese. The victorious marines showed up with pockets bulging with tins of crab meat alongside 21 cases of beer and 17 half gallons of sake. I would call that a good haul. One of Kawaguchi's men wrote, It is maddening to be recipients of these daring and insulting attacks. However, when Edson reported back, he brought some dire news as well. As he put it, this is no motley of Japs. Edson estimated around 4,000 Japanese were en route. They had captured documents to back up the claims, vindicating Clemens and his native scouts' mathematical abilities. Around the same time, reports came in from native scouts that the Japanese columns were marching south and southwest from Tetri. On September the 9th, Gerald Thomas was looking over charts, wondering where the Japanese were going to hit. Edson drew his finger along a photo, and he said, This looks like a good approach. Indicating a grassy ridge, just a mile due south of Henderson Field. The thousand-yard-long elevation resembled an animal crawling south off the western end of Henderson Field into a rainforest. At the southern end of the ridge was an 80-foot knoll. A second knoll, around 120 feet, was midway. Thomas and Edson reported to Vandegrift their analysis, and the general ordered the HQ be moved to a low ridge northwest of the airfield. That same day, an air raid arrived at 11.15 a.m., 27 Bettys and 14 Zeros. Five Wildcats failed to return after intercepting the enemy. Meanwhile, the 17th Army requested Kawaguchi's opinion on where he thought to land a newly arrived 4th Infantry of the 3rd Battalion. Kawaguchi told them to land at Teivu Point. However, the 17th Army began to ponder what to do if Kawaguchi failed. So they instead told the transports to land the men at Kamimbu Bay, on the northwestern tip of the island, a much safer point than Teivu Point. With the new units was Colonel Matsumoto, 
and the army agreed if Kabaguchi failed, the western end of the island would be the best place to set up operations. Kawaguchi, of course, did not intend to fail, but he certainly misjudged the jungle he was about to face. From Koli Point, his battalions advanced west and began peeling off into the jungle one by one. At the Balasuna River, on September the 8th, the 3rd Battalions of the 124th Infantry plunged inland before heading west into the jungle. The 124th Infantry of the 1st Battalion angled south a bit from Nalimbu River, and then went west a bit. The 4th Infantry of the 2nd Battalion pivoted left into the jungle with the Brigade HQ in its wake. The Bear Battalion had remained at Coley Point to thwart further marine invaders until midnight of September the 9th before moving along the coast towards the Tenaru River. The Japanese found the advance through the jungle resembling like going through a compressed spring. The longer you pushed, the harder it became. Soaking wet from rain, slipping everywhere, especially during the night, was not fun. Neither was running into marine patrols or Clemens scouts. On September the 10th, the Japanese navigation faltered, creating a traffic jam as the 4th Infantry of the 2nd Battalion, the 124th of the 1st, the Brigade HQ, and the Bear Battalion all ran into another. The bears wormed off their own course, but the other three groups fell into a single column. Kawaguchi would only be able to recontact the 124th of the 3rd Battalion on September the 12th. The artillery guys faced less jungle, but would also have a tedious journey. They had set out from Tidori during the Etsin raid and suffered the attention of American aircraft at the offset. Some of their older field guns could be dissembled to be carried through the jungle, but others could not, compelling them to follow the coast as much as possible. The wheels of the pieces got stuck in sand and mud constantly, causing agony. The carts carrying the ammunition burst their tires or bent their axles, leading men to have to carry the shells by hand, and that is not fun. During the march, Kawaguchi fixed the date of the attack to be on September the 12th, and informed all the commanders of this. However, the 11th brought some very bad news. Kawaguchi was informed of Etsin's raid, including the loss of some artillery and a brigade's radio. Oka managed to establish contact to reveal he was assembling his men, around 650 of them. Oka led his men through the Matanikau and made good time meeting with Captain Monzin at 7.40am on September the 11th. Monzin added 450 combat troops and 1,200 construction units and workers for the attack. During the night, Oka learned 630 units of the 4th Infantry of the 3rd Battalion had landed at Kamimo Bay, boosting his morale. With short time on hand, Oka issued a plan. He would lead the Regimental HQ and two companies of the 124th of the 2nd Battalion towards the bridge southwest of the airfield to synchronize with Kawaguchi's attack at 8pm on September the 12th. Monzen's men would hit along the coast. Lieutenant Colonel Wakiya's engineer boat unit would mount a noisy feint attack, but not before using their barges to transport the fresh 4th Infantry to the Matanikau to help with the assault. However, frequent strafing attacks from the Cactus Air Force kept delaying the barges, forcing the 4th to move on foot, and thus they failed to make it in time to join the assault. Small patrol encounters increased, 
until it became impossible for Kawaguchi's forces to retain the element of surprise. The Marines had a good idea of where the Japanese columns were heading. On September the 10th, after a breakfast of rice and dehydrated potatoes, the raiders and parachutists moved towards the ridge south of the airfield. Their timing was quite fortunate, as 25 Bettys and 15 Zeros hit Henderson Field at 12-12, prompting 11 Wildcats to try and retaliate. The pilots claimed three downed Bettys at the cost of a single Wildcat, leaving 11 operational Wildcats left of the 24 that had flown in since August the 20th. However, Nimitz stepped in to help, allowing an additional dozen Wildcats to scramble over at noon on September the 11th to intercept the raid of 27 Bettys and 15 Zeros, claiming another Betty. Edson's men were digging their foxholes and clearing a firing field with bayonets when the air raid alarm went off, indicating the Japanese were approaching. As recalled by the men, Marines who clawed a few inches deeper into their holes or flung themselves behind logs emerged shaking but safe. Those who stood or ran aimlessly, and a few did, were killed or wounded by flying splinters. Fourteen men were wounded, with eleven of them beyond help. During the same busy hours of September the 11th, Admiral Turner and McCain flew over Espiritu de Santo, to meet with Vandegrift. They handed him a naval message, which made him go pale. The message was Admiral Gormley's estimation of the situation. The Japanese were amassing overwhelming, powerful naval, air, and ground forces at Rabaul and Truk to launch a large offensive to retake Guadalcanal. Their attacks would most likely come within three weeks, perhaps less than ten days. To contest this, Gormley stated his forces were simply insufficient, and thus he concluded he would not be able to support the Marines on Guadalcanal. However, all was not without hope. Gormley finished by adding he wanted to send the 7th Marines to Guadalcanal, and thus that was why Turner was there. When they were done reading Gormley's message, Turner produced a bottle of scotch and said, Vandegrift, I'm not inclined to take so pessimistic a view of the situation as Gormley does. He doesn't believe I can get the 7th Marine Regiment here, but I believe I have a scheme that will fool the Japs. Turner's idea was to send the 7th in small parcels all around the island, and thus create a reception committee for all the incoming Japanese landings at beaches to try and wipe them out as they all arrived. A very... MacArthur idea? There of course was one major problem with this idea. There were already Japanese on the island that could easily annihilate these pockets of men. Vandegrift vigorously asked that the 7th Marines be sent ashore at Lunga Point, where he needed the most. On September the 12th, another raid appeared over Guadalcanal at 11.50. 25 Bettys and 15 Zeros were met by 12 Marine and 20 Naval Wildcats. This interception exacted a heavier toll, five Bettys and one zero. However, the attack took out the main radio station, ignited some gasoline, and destroyed three grounded Dauntless. Kawaguchi began the day by interrogating a captured American pilot, who coughed up that the marine defensive lines were strongest to the east and along the coast, while the weakest point was exactly where Kawaguchi was heading, south of the airfield. 
The prisoner also said the Japanese approach was undetected because of the jungle canopy. Meanwhile, the bear detachment reported it was ready to attack at 1225, but Oka could only use two companies that night and not the full two battalions. That would have to wait for the 13th. Kawaguchi refused to delay the attack despite the news. Admiral Turner had just sampled some of the marine cuisine before he had to leave, and he told correspondents, The marines would be on the island for a long time, and things will get worse before they get better. That statement would prove to be very accurate for the next 48 hours. By nightfall, the raiders and parachutists were around 840 men strong, and barely had enough time to string barbed wire along their position. Edson placed the parachutists to the east, with the raiders to the west. Companies A, D, and E of the raiders were abreast of the high knoll, at its midpoint, while its command post was east of the ridge behind the parachutists. There were a series of strong points with fields of fire for mutual support behind a single strand of barbed wire fence just in front of the jungle. To the right of Edson, the 1st Pioneer Battalion held a hill east of the Lunga River. The 1st Amphibian Tractor Battalion took a hill facing west of the Lunga. Then, the 1st Engineer Battalion was just due left of Edson. Edson was convinced the brunt of the attack would hit his front, and he planned for multiple patrols for the next day to throw the invaders off balance. During the night, while Edson was holding a conference, suddenly the Marines heard a float plane. They then went out and saw it was dropping flares everywhere, and at 9.30pm, the Sendai alongside the three IGN destroyers began to bombard the perimeter. Most of their shells fell to the east of Edson's position, but they managed to kill three pilots. Through the noise of the shelling, suddenly rifle fire, motors, machine guns, and grenades could be heard. The Japanese pushed down the east bank of the lagoon area, west of the ridge, striking at companies B and C of the raiders. Company C was quickly cut off, forcing Company B to curl back to protect their flank. Seven Marines went missing as the Japanese attacked Company C now east of the swamp area, while another party of Japanese moved along the river trying to outflank them. A second naval bombardment fell between midnight and 1250. Now the 5-inch coast defense guns of the Marine batteries began to fire upon the Japanese. From Kawaguchi's point of view, the aim was to hit the ridge at 8pm using multiple groups, but this is not what occurred. All of his battalions had reached their assembly areas far too late. The 124th of the 1st got to its assembly area two hours before the scheduled attack, while the 124th of the 2nd and 4th stumbled into their assembly areas around two to three hours after the scheduled assault time. When the three battalions numbering about 2,506 men commenced their attacks, they lost their sense of direction, almost entirely missing the ridge, and they drifted into the low, waterlogged swath of jungle between the ridge and Lunga Point. Many of the units became lost, many units scattered, and those scattered units ran into another, intermingling and causing confusion. Kawaguchi and his battalion commanders lost control, and the captains... Lieutenant sergeants and privates were faced with trying to hit the enemy from the jungle. On the Japanese left, the 124th of the 1st advanced along the Lunga, waddling in chest-high water. Many units of the 124th of the 3rd Battalion had entangled themselves with them, and in an effort to stop the confusion, Yukichi Okusho directed his unit to the west of the bank of the Lunga. 
By the time he restored control over his men, one hour remained of daylight, far too late to perform a night attack properly. On the Japanese right, the 124th of the 3rd advanced until they encountered the Marine Defensive Line at 1am. The unit tried to penetrate the Marine Line between the Raider companies, but could not find a weak enough pocket to break through, as American artillery battered them, killing two company commanders. Kawaguchi directed his command group at the ridge, but he too found the terrain confusing and ended up sidestepping due west of Lunga. He alongside his men began to wade north up a stream bed until the depth and flow was too much forcing the general to crawl out of the water onto the east bank near Don. From there he ordered his fragmented force to reassemble for a new offensive to be made the night of the 13th. Kawaguchi was wet, full of mud, and really pissed off. He wrote, Because of this devilish jungle, the brigade was scattered all over and completely beyond control. In my whole life, I have never felt so helpless. To make things worse, the American artillery had destroyed his communications equipment. While Kawaguchi's main body was in chaos, the two wing units were also in a fiasco. The Bear Battalion had reached its assembly point making good time and used the last of their fuel to cook food. Once night came about, they had no significant lighting, and became helplessly lost thrashing about in the jungle hearing the distant sound of battle. At daybreak, they were horrified to discover that their attack had misfired because their assembly area was actually further east of the American lines than they had thought. The left wing unit led by Oka was supposed to have set out from the Matanikau at sundown on the 11th, but for unknown reasons, he failed to begin the march until 4am on the 12th and remained too far away from the assembly area to get into action. For much of the night, Admiral Turner expressed skepticism about the authenticity of the sounds of battle coming from the ridge, just a few hundred yards away. But once he heard the IGN warship's bombardments, he knew a real battle was afoot. The next morning, he asked Vandegrift where he wanted the 7th Marines to land again, and Vandegrift pointed to the beach. That's where I want them landed right in the perimeter. After seeing Turner off, Vandegrift went to his air deputy, Geiger, and showed him Gormley's message while explaining, Come hell or high water, and if necessary, I will take the men to the hills to fight on if the perimeter cannot hold. Archer, if we can't use the planes back in the hill, we'll fly them out. But whatever happens, I'm staying here with you. During the morning of the 13th, Edson sat on a log eating some cold meat and potatoes while he said to his lieutenants, They were testing, just testing. They'll be back. But maybe not as many of them. Or maybe more. I want all positions improved. All wire lines paralleled. A hot meal for the men. Today, we dig. Wire up tight. Get some sleep. We'll all need it. Over on Rabal, there had been no radio contact, nurturing the hope everything was going accordingly. They listened to the American radio traffic, hoping to hear about Kawaguchi's success. Then, this was followed up by air reconnaissance, claiming they saw Kawaguchi's forces holding Henderson Field, despite the fact 28 Wildcats were lifting off the runway to attack them. The reconnaissance was followed up with a daily bombing raid of 26 Bettys and a dozen Zeros who dumped their loads all over the area. 
Colonel Oka radioed Kawaguchi on the 13th, asking to delay the action, to allow the 4th and the 3rd to catch up and hit the southwest. But Kawaguchi refused to delay. He told everyone the assault was to commence at 10 p.m. no matter what. Edson prepared a surprise for the Japanese by pulling his line back 200 yards onto some better ground. However, he lacked sufficient men to form a continuous line. Thus, small combat groups the size of platoons organized themselves at 100-yard intervals, defending the jungle and swamp area west of Lunga's Ridge. Clear fields of fire existed only in the center along the ridge itself, but the surrounding areas aside from that were rough terrain, which would hinder the Japanese advance. Edson entrusted Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Griffith to take command of the right flank. Lieutenant Colonel Merrill found the men glassy-eyed, mumbling their words and showing the all telltale signs of exhaustion. But there was no way to replace them on that line that day. Darkness had barely settled in when the Japanese began their attack. At 6.30, the first blows came upon the ridge and to the west. The invaders dislodged the right platoon of Company B from the line and encircled them for a short time until the platoon fought its way back to the ridge. Some Japanese surged into a 200-yard wide gap between the two marine companies led by Major Kokusho, brandishing his sword. By 9 p.m., the American artillery dropped at the south end of the ridge and 30 minutes later was followed up by marine gunners and a second barrage within 200 yards of the front line as the Japanese tried to get up the ridge. By 10 p.m., a full battalion of 105mm howitzers were firing down upon the ridge in front of Companies B and two small parachute companies who may have been facing two full Japanese battalions. Japanese infantry gathered in front of Company B of the parachutists, beginning to infiltrate around their east side, around the high knoll. Captain Harry Torgerson, an executive officer of the parachutists, tossed grenades along with a comrade into the incoming Japanese. At 10.30, the Japanese came in greater force, subjecting Company B to intense motor fire and waves of infantrymen. Soon, smoke grenades were being tossed all around as Marines heard Totsugeki, charge. A Marine commander watched as the Japanese pummeled his front, many getting into his left flank and rear, while the American 105mm howitzers shelled dangerously close to his position. The commander pulled his men back, and soon companies B and C of the parachutists assembled behind the high knoll around 150 yards to the rear, preparing for a counterattack. The main weight of the Japanese attack now fell upon Captain John B. Sweeney of the Raiders Company B, 60 men strong. Behind them, Edson moved his command post forward to the top of the high knoll in the center of the ridge. There, Edson organized a defense with the Raider Company C along the south and west of the knoll, and Company A of the parachutists took the east side. Edson ordered Raider Company B to fall back, and soon they formed the rearward. A withdrawal at night in the face of an enemy attack ranks as one of the most difficult maneuvers in war. Men get confused. Order is easily lost, but Edson's marines managed to pull it off. There were murmurs of withdraw from units that could have caused a domino effect amongst the lines, but they did not rout. What aided the withdrawal was a literal curtain of artillery shells and the aiming by the 11th Marines. Breathless runners went back and forth giving the coordinates for the attacks. One reported to Edson, 
It's knocking the hell out of them. The 124th of the 1st Battalion suffered many casualties from artillery and rifle fire. The sword-wielding Major Kokusho was dead. Major Tamura, leading the 4th of the 2nd Battalion, had an assembly area very close to the Marine lines. When the shelling of his unit became intense at 10pm, he decided not to wait for any order and he hurtled his men forward at once. His men smashed against Raider Company B, forcing their withdrawal. But as his men pursued them, they took heavy losses. Two platoon leaders were dead before Edson made his final stand. About 300 Marines gripped the knoll in a horseshoe formation, the last defensive line before Henderson Field. The commander of the 1st Parachute Battalion proved to be inept, so Edson replaced him with a more aggressive Captain Harry Torgerson. Torgerson quickly reorganized companies B and C and launched a counterattack, driving forward and extending the defensive line to the east of Company A. Edson, meanwhile, moved the defensive barrage closer and closer, but the Japanese kept on coming. Because of the elevation of the ridge, the Marines were able to pull pins from their grenades and literally roll them down the hill where a ton of Kawaguchi's men were consolidating themselves. Most of the time, when the Japanese were about to attack, they would ignite a red flare, thus the red flares began to be signals for the Marines to toss grenades at. They yelled Banzai as they charged up the ridge, met with showers of grenades. The ridges were covered in shrapnel, black powder marks, and human flesh. Marines shrieked curses and repelled the attacks with mostly grenade and machine gun fire. Most of their crews suffered extreme casualties and had to be frequently replaced. At 2 a.m., the Japanese motor barrage drenched the ridge and cut telephone wires going back to the divisional HQ, which was essential for providing artillery locations. Linesmen surged forward to restring wire under fire and managed to finish their job by 3 a.m. All the while, nearly all the grenades and machine gun ammo was used up at the front. A resupply was rushed forward by Major Bailey, who crawled on his hands and knees across the ridge, getting his scalp grazed by a bullet that punctured his helmet. The Goliath amount of defense came from Merritt Edson, who was around 10 or 20 yards behind the firing line, his clothes pierced at the collar and waist by bullets as he controlled the carnage, telling any of his men who wavered, Go back where you came from. The only thing they've got that you haven't is guts. At 4am, the divisional HQ began to slip some of the 5th Marines of the 2nd Battalion to strengthen the line and this would help fend off two more attacks before dawn. Not all of the Japanese were halted at the ridge. In a final surge, Major Tamura committed his 6th Company to make a breakthrough. They passed through the 5th Company. Nearly half of the fresh units were hit and wounded. Nonetheless, Tamura pushed forward northeast with 60 or so men, through the Marine position and reached the western fringe of Fighter 1 at 5.30 a.m. There, his men overran Company C of the 1st Engineer Battalion and seized two machine guns. However, the engineers rallied alongside some men from the headquarters and Company D to push the Japanese back. When dawn came, the sound of aircraft engines began. P-40s of the 67th Fighter Squadron climbed up to strafe the Japanese. They skimmed over, firing across the ridge, and they saw around 500 dead Japanese draped like a carpet in all places. It was a ghastly scene. Lieutenant Colonel Griffith said of it, With heads lolling and mouths agape, 
the inscrutable dead stared with glazed and sightless eyes at the morning sun. The 124th of the 1st, 4th, and 2nd began their assaults nearly 1,700 men strong and brought Edson's battalion to the verge of defeat. Given one more battalion, Kawaguchi most likely would have made a breakthrough, and for all intents and purposes, it should have occurred. Kawaguchi soon learned that two of his battalions had lost half of their strength, and he was enraged to discover the 124th of the 3rd had barely entered the action. He stated, That powerful battalion, the one I had counted on the most, was completely mismanaged. When I heard of this, I could not help shedding tears of disappointment, anger, and regret. As pissed off as Kawaguchi was, he could not really vent because he had no idea where the battalion or its commander was. When Lieutenant Colonel Watanabe would finally appear, he had a tale to tell. He had set out on the 13th looking for Kawaguchi's HQ and failed to find him in the jungle. So he attempted to return to his battalion, but shelling pinned him down. Then Watanabe's old war wound from Manchuria acted up and he spent an entire night with his small entourage trying to contact command. Without their commander, the battalion moved out of their assembly area at 7.30 on the right front of the Japanese line, and they began fanning out by 10pm. Of the entire battalion, only a single company made it to the battle. The company attacked two parachute companies trying to slip around the defenders' left flank and received heavy casualties for their efforts and they had to stop fighting by dawn. When daylight came, Kawaguchi's men had to pull back, but small groups and individuals were scattered about behind the high knoll. Sniper fire made any movement dangerous, and by 8am a jeep crawled down the ridge bearing 5 wounded, and was surprise attacked by a hidden machine gun nest killing Edson's operation officer, Major Robert Brown. 30 minutes later, Captain Torgerson led the parachutists off the ridge. Of the 397 men who had stormed Gavitu on August the 7th, 86 got off the ridge. Raider Companies A and B of the 1st Marines were sent to probe south of the ridge, where Company A was met with strong opposition. Company B ran right into an ambush, and one platoon was virtually annihilated. Two companies lost 18 men dead. Some men began stock-taking at Division Command, when suddenly a Japanese officer and two soldiers burst out of the jungle in a bunzai charge. One Marine, named Trigaskis, thought the sound of the Japanese screaming sounded like a loud blubbering turkey's gobbler's cry. The Japanese officer stabbed a Marine with his sword as the three enemies were shot dead. The scene showcased some dark humor as a marine gunner named Shepard Banta was berating a young marine for some minor transgression when the bunzai occurred. And he simply paused, shot one of the Japanese, and kept lecturing the youth. Vandegrift and his HQ reviewed the situation. They had committed their only reserve battalion to replace Edson's exhausted men, and they had no troops to pursue Kawaguchi's fleeing main body. They also knew there were other enemy detachments, as at around 10pm on the 13th, the Bear Battalion had begun its advance in a column towards the Marine line. Ironically, the Marines knew their location, but Kawaguchi did not. 
The Bear Battalion ran into the southeastern section of the perimeter, manned by the 3rd Battalion of the 1st Marines, led by Lieutenant Colonel William McKelvey. The defenders held their line at the edge of a patch of jungle with a grassy area between. At around 11.30 p.m., a rifle company of the Bears walked into the field in front of McKelvey's line. They encountered barbed wire and gunfire. The leading elements of the Bears quickly overran an outpost manned by five Marines of Company K before assaulting the main position of Company K. The invaders became entangled with the barbed wire and were gunned down before they could withdraw, leaving 20 dead bodies ensnared across the wire, including Major Mizuno, the Bear Battalion's commander. Four Marines died, and three were wounded in this clash. At daylight, the firing ceased, but McKelvey remained concerned that the Japanese might simply be waiting in the tall grass to hit his main body. At 9.45am, six light tanks performed a sweep of the area without any incident. Some units from Company K's overrun outpost reported seeing Japanese on the eastern side of the plane, prompting McKelvey to send the tanks that way. The Japanese were waiting with anti-tank guns, and they managed to take out three of the tanks. Two tank crews managed to escape, but the third had overturned and entombed its crew. A fourth tank was disabled, and during the night of the 14th, the bears made an attack, but only succeeded in placing five more dead bodies across the barbed wire. By the 15th, the bears made a half-hearted last attempt, equally unsuccessful. And while all of this was occurring, Colonel Oka had taken two rifle companies and one machine gun company, thrashing through the jungle all night to reach the Marine lines around daylight. They hit the Marines' western perimeter line held by Company L of the 5th Marine 2nd Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Bybush. Oka's force was driven off by artillery, but tried to make several small attacks later that day. At the Japanese HQ, officers huddled awaiting word on what was going on. A crew of Zero pilots stood by to occupy Henderson Field while the 8th Fleet cruised impatiently. Three Zeros from Rakata Bay performed a reconnaissance, but they ended up becoming victims to the Cactus Air Force. At noon, a larger reconnaissance plane with seven Zero escorts tried to penetrate Guadalcanal, getting into some dogfights with the Cactus Air Force. The first message from Guadalcanal came from Colonel Matsumoto, who did not really know what was going on either. He had landed at Kimimbo Bay and was unable to participate in the battle. Matsumoto had no idea on the status of Kawaguchi or Oka's men. The last major battle came in the air late in the day of the 14th, when 17 Pete bombers and two Zeros showed up for a twilight attack on Henderson Field. They were met by 10 Wildcats, claiming four Pete's and a Zero at no cost. During the entire air struggle, the Americans claimed to have downed 39 bombers and 21 fighters, though the actual number was 15 Bettys and 10 Zeros. Thus, the Cactus Air Force claimed on average two times the amount they had actually hit. And as you probably know, listening to this series for a while, the Japanese claims are much, much grander. At 8.30am on the morning of the 15th, Kawaguchi's long-awaited battle report came back to Rabaul. General Hayakotake and his staff were shocked. The 17th Army HQ concluded the reasons for the colossal failure was due to ill-considered barge movements, difficult communication in jungle, poor maps, faulty intelligence, and superior American firepower. 
The IGN's assessment was far more critical, highlighting the mismatch of sending men with swords and bayonets into prepared marine defensive lines. The IGN combined fleet labeled the defeat another example of lingering intoxication of the IGA's early victories at the beginning of the war. Admiral Yamamoto's key staff officer said bluntly, The IGA had been used to fighting the Chinese. The 11th Marines had fired 1,992 rounds of artillery fire on the night of September the 13th using 105mm howitzers, and this accounted for two-thirds of the three-quarters of all Kawaguchi's losses on the ridge. The parachutists and raiders were critical to holding Henderson Field, and for his skilled and extraordinary leadership, Merritt Edson was awarded the Medal of Honor. Major Kenneth Bailey also received the Medal of Honor, though he would not live long enough to actually receive it. I don't usually do this, but I feel it might be worthwhile for some of you to know. A bit far back into this series, I interviewed a man named Dave Holland. He has a YouTube channel called Walking the Battlefield, Guadalcanal. He is a former United States Marine, and he actually has lived and worked on Guadalcanal for some time. A very interesting job. The man is a literal encyclopedia of every action that occurred during the battle for Guadalcanal. There will be two more interviews that will premiere on this podcast series featuring Dave Holland. But Dave wanted to do something a bit more ambitious that required visuals. So on my personal YouTube channel, the Pacific War Channel, we're going to have a few episodes coming out soon that are on all the Medal of Honors earned by men on the land at Guadalcanal. So basically for each Marine or Coast Guard for that matter, you're going to hear the actual story of how they received that Medal of Honor, the actions that took place. And Dave has an extensive amount of photographs from today and from back then to showcase what it looked like. It's going to be a very well done series, I think. So anyways, I invite all of you that are interested to uh, watch it when it comes out. Back to the story at hand, it's hard to gauge the losses. Many figures state there was about 135 casualties for the Raiders and 128 for the Parachutists. Of this total, around 96 men were dead, and 222 were wounded. For the Japanese, Kawaguchi's report stated they went in with about 212 officers and 6,005 men, including the Bears and Oka. Of these, 29 officers and 679 men were killed, with 14 officers and 492 men wounded. The true number of losses for the Japanese is most likely exceeding 800 dead, however. For Kawaguchi's men, the hardship of battle would continue. At 1pm on September the 14th, Kawaguchi led his main body out of the reach of American artillery and aircraft attacks upon the ridge. Each of his battalions tried to pull back as best as they could, but many companies remained out of touch until the 16th. At 9pm on the 15th, Kawaguchi had ordered a withdrawal across the Matanikau. All of their rations had been consumed by the 14th. Kawaguchi's men had only brought two days' worth of rations from Taifu Point, in anticipation of living off captured American supplies. Already exhausted from battle, and gnawed by the hunger they faced as they marched across the Lunga and part of Mount Austin, some of the most grueling terrain of Guadalcanal, nearly every soldier was carrying a wounded man who were loaded four to each tent sheet. It took four men to carry the makeshift litters and a fifth man to carry the weapons. 
For every five or six days, the Japanese columns struggled over the slippery jungle ridges, getting stuck in mud and streams everywhere. Lacking any food, they had to forage for betel nuts, weeds, and some guys even tried killing fish with grenades. Many of the wounded died, coming out of the litters showing wounds infested with maggots. As the strength of the unwounded deteriorated, all the heavy weapons were abandoned, and in a short time, most of the rifles fell from weakened hands until half were gone. Kawaguchi reached Kokumbona at 2pm on September the 19th, where he met with Oka. His artillery unit and the bears had a worse trip. They tried to follow Kawaguchi but became lost and wandered for over four weeks in the jungle, losing all their weapons and they became severely malnourished. If it was not for a very lucky radio contact on the 23rd, they may have all very well died. During the entire ordeal that was the battle for Bloody Ridge, the Imperial General Headquarters came to a crucial decision. It was now apparent the battle for Guadalcanal had become a competition to see who could reinforce the island the fastest, and it became even more clear that at this remote island, a decisive battle would be fought. Therefore, decisive forces would be committed. I would like to take this time to remind all of you this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where soon I'll have an entire series dedicated to the Medal of Honors given to the men who fought on Guadalcanal. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. Oh boy, we really got into the thick of it today, with the Battle of Bloody Ridge, also known as the Battle of Edson's Ridge. The American Marines proved their mettle, and Kawaguchi proved one should not dive into a jungle unprepared. From this point on, Things would only get worse for the unfortunate souls on Starvation Island.